Well, it's been a while <laughs> since I've been up here. Um, it's, I lived in California for a month, and uh, it's good to be back in God's country. <laughs> it's good to be back in the king's house and with the king's people and um, to taste the Lord's blood, which uh, something, uh, that was something that uh, I also missed in my time away, and I'm appreciative that uh, Brother James uh, prayed that way, that this is our weekly our weekly washing, uh, so it is more than just uh, something that we remember. Uh, there is uh, something effectual to it, and so again, I uh, I, I long to uh, partake of the table with you, as well as uh, to again be in fellowship with you. Well, today, uh, seeing that this is my uh, first uh, Sunday back in the pulpit uh, for this new year. Uh, what I want to do is make sure that uh, we as the body of Christ are uh, walking the same path. And to do that means that we have uh, the same goal. And so what we're going to talk about this morning uh, is the Christian goal. I don't have a handout for you this morning, so you're just going to need to take uh, notes on something. The title then is just that, the Christian goal, the Christian goal. Once you've written that down, if you would go ahead and pray with me now and ask the Lord's blessing on our time. Father, thank you that we can gather here, that we have a place to do that. I pray that we would never take that for granted, that we would understand that it is a blessing that we can come and hear your word and to give back to you through your words in uh, the singing, Lord, and in the confession and in the things we pray. Father, I pray that now as uh, we again open your word and we hear from you, that you would bless it, use it to equip and to encourage your people. This we pray in the name of our King, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Albert Einstein once said, if you want to live a happy and productive life, then you need to tie that life to a goal. To a goal. And with these words, Scripture agrees. Proverbs 29.18 says this, where there is no vision or goal, the people perish. Simply possessing a goal, however, is not enough. It needs to be the right goal. The right goal. And this is true even for the Christian. If we are going to live the kind of happy and productive lives that God desires, then we need to make sure that the goal we possess is the goal given by His Word. So that is what we're going to talk about today, what that goal is and uh, uh, what the strategy is for achieving it. So the first question then is this, what is the Christian goal? That's number one. What is the Christian goal? What is the Christian goal? Thankfully, uh, one verse suffices to give us the answer to that question, and that verse is found 
in Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3, verse 14. Philippians chapter 3, verse 14. Paul writes, I press on toward the goal. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. According to Paul, then, the goal of the Christian or the Christian life is acquiring the prize. Again, I press on toward the goal for the prize. This is the direction then we are to be running through the decisions or actions of our life. Again, I press on, which is a term or a phrase that just means to chase or run. I chase or run toward or in the direction of, again, the goal for the prize. So the next question is, what is the prize? What is the prize? Well, the prize is heaven. Heaven. Or the next life, or as I've called it before, the reboot. The new heavens and earth, or the new heaven on earth the new creation to come. That is the prize. That is the prize that Paul is speaking of here. Hence the reason he identifies it as the upward call. The prize, again, of the upward or heavenly call. In verse 11, he refers to it as the resurrection from the dead. Verse 10, that I may know him, meaning Christ, and the power of his resurrection, and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. This is why Jesus saved us. Going back to our verse, verse 14, that term call, upward call, that term call refers to being chosen for salvation. Why I say King Jesus, or this is why King Jesus saved us, because uh, this is what it means to call Jesus Christ Jesus, according to Luke 23. In Luke 23, when uh, the Jews are, are accusing Jesus of doing wrong to Pilate, they say, uh, he has claimed to be a Christ, a king. Christ means king. And so again, this is what Christ Jesus or King Jesus has called us to. This is what he has saved us unto. Acquiring the prize. The heavenly prize. Verse 12. Verse 12, not, Paul says, that I've already obtained this, this prize, this goal, 
or I'm already perfect, but I press on. Again, I run, I chase to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. To make what my own? The goal, the prize. Jesus, again, he says, has made me his own. He has saved me so that I would press on, I would run again to make it the prize of heaven, my own. Paul unpacks this goal and its heavenly prize a little more in verses 20 and 21 by saying this, but our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power of that enables him even to subject all things to himself. By or but our citizenship rather is in heaven. This is stated in terms of a goal, not as a current reality. What Paul is saying based on the prior verse, verse 19, is this. We don't set our mind or focus our goal on earthly things. Again, verse 19 but I'm becoming citizens of heaven. At that time, according to Paul, Jesus will transform our lowly, think base model or ghetto bodies to be like his glorious superior kid's G-wagon body. A body no longer susceptible to pain and suffering, including the suffering of death. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul there speaks about uh, this new body that we will receive. In verse 42, so it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown, what is, sown is perishable. What goes, in other words, into the ground. This body, this lowly body is perishable. What is raised in the resurrection is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory, it is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. What is implied by all these statements about our bodies is that the same will be true in the place that they dwell. Heaven will be a place where those things also have ceased to exist, pain and suffering, which means never again, never again will we be asked to sacrifice or suffer. Things we are expected to experience, to endure in this life. Paul, even in this letter, Philippians chapter 1, verse 29, says this, For it has been granted to you, Christian, that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. This life, yes, The next life, no. Revelation 21. Revelation 21. Speaking about the next life, the reboot, heaven, the paradise to come. Here is what we're told starting in verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth have passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. 
And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. Romans chapter 8, Romans chapter 8, Paul speaks there to these particular issues, both our resurrection and the new creation. He starts in verse 18 with these words, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy, or not worth rather, comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, meaning now, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. And so even the creation itself is is, is waiting for this transformation. The creation itself is waiting and looking forward to the new world. Understanding that it will not come until our own transformation, our lowly bodies, have been turned into those glorious bodies. Verse 24, for in this hope we were saved. With this goal, in other words, we were saved. That's what Paul is saying here, just as he's saying in Philippians 3. For in this hope we were saved. Not the hope that is seen. That's not hope for for who hopes for what he sees. It's something yet to come. It is a goal that has not yet been realized or achieved or attained. Again, for who hopes for what he sees. But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know how to pray or pray as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches the hearts knows what's the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called, saved, chosen, according to his purpose. Again, you could put in there the the word goal, called, chosen, saved, according to his goal. What is he telling us there in verses 26 through 28? Well, that God, through the Spirit and through the events of our life, leads us toward that goal. The goal that is yet unseen. That for which the creation itself groans, longing, waiting for. The better life. Beloved, that's the the Christian goal. 
the goal of the better life, the goal of heaven. This again is why we were saved or enlisted by King Jesus. We were saved to again press on to chase after that prize, the prize of heaven. That is to be our focus, again, our purpose, our goal in this life. Getting to the next life, the better life. This is why we do what we do. This determines in our actions and our choices. We do everything to achieve our goal. And again, the goal is to get the prize, the heavenly prize of getting to heaven. And going back again to our text in verse 11, Paul says just prior to that, we do it by any means possible, any means possible. In summary then, the Christian goal, the Christian goal given by King Jesus, the Christian goal is to get To heaven. That's the Christian goal. Now, having said that, let me tell you what I think is true of too many in this church. Based on how you live your Christian life or based on your perspective on life or what I hear you doing when you disciple your kids, you think the Christian goal is just the opposite. The goal for you is not acquire the prize of heaven, but avoid the pain of hell. Let me say that again. For you, the goal is not acquire the prize of heaven. This is not what you think about. This is not how you live your life. This is not your perspective on why you're here and why you do what you do or don't do. It is not because you are running after or attempting to chase the heavenly prize. It is instead for you, your perspective, what you disciple your kids in by the terms and the words that you use. The goal is instead avoid the pain of hell. You better stop doing that or you're going to go to hell. You need to obey Jesus or you're going to go to hell. If that's the way that you speak, if that is the predominant part of the message that you speak both to yourself and to those under you, then the goal for you is not the Christian goal. Because the Christian goal is acquire the prize of heaven. Do what you do. Obey Jesus so that you can get the prize. Not obey Jesus so that you can avoid the pain. As the result of thinking this way, avoid the pain versus acquire the prize. As a result of thinking this way, those who think this way, avoid the pain. If you are among those types of people or you are one of those uh, people, you have a very hard time getting through this life as a Christian. You have a very hard time being bold or passionate about the things of God. Hopefully I'm speaking to you right now. You're sitting here and you're hearing what I'm saying. You're saying, that's exactly me. Because that's exactly my perspective on life. I feel like I live the Christian life as a means to avoiding uh, the greater pain of hell. I'll be obedient now so I can avoid 
what's worse later. And as a result, there's no passion. There's no boldness. You're not very motivated about being a Christian because being a Christian is all about avoiding pain or the worst pain of hell. Being a Christian is all about being focused on something negative, the avoidance of pain, rather than something positive, chasing after the prize. Do you see the difference? The Christian life for you is essentially the lesser of two evils. Enduring having your uh, fingernails pulled out one by one as you face the sacrifice and suffering associated with following Christ so that you can avoid the far worse form of suffering, uh, cooking forever in a lake of fire. God is viewed by you as nothing more than the cosmic killjoy and sadist, someone who takes pleasure in torturing people. He is therefore not someone you are inclined to love or want to get to know. Hence the reason you uh, don't prefer to read your Bible and you worry about missing out on the pleasures of this world. You need some relief from the negativity of your Christian existence. Living as though the Christian goal is the avoidance of pain also makes people cowards. Cowards. Anytime uh, something difficult has to be done or something difficult is taking place in the church or in your home, uh, you uh, tend to shrink back and question whether or not you should pull the trigger. Again, because it's all about the avoidance of pain. Another result of thinking that the goal of the Christian life is the avoidance of pain, most especially the pain of hell, is that uh, you don't look much different than the world around you. This is the view of the atheist. The view of the atheist says this, Seek as much comfort as I can now while avoiding as much pain as I can now. Very similar to this wrong Christian view. The problem with this is your goal, the avoidance of pain is the chances of succeeding in any demonstrable way is like avoiding a snowflake in a blizzard. Trials and tribulations are a fact of life for the Christian as well as the atheist, and the more that you avoid them, the more plentiful they will be, and the more disappointed and disillusioned you will become. This, by the way, is the answer to what confuses many people in regard to Uh, the rich and famous of the world, or the rock stars, or the movie stars. How is it that uh, we see on a regular basis that they are still susceptible to depression and will at times even kill themselves? Let me give you some examples. Chester Bennington, some of you are uh, fans or are fans of Linkin Park. The lead singer for Linkin Park killed himself. Chesley Chris. Chesley Christ, I hope I get, I'm getting her name correct here. Uh, 2019 Miss USA killed herself. Robin Williams, the famous actor, killed himself. Ernest Hemingway, the famous writer, killed himself. All the money, food, fun, possessions of this world cannot remove the trials and tribulations of this world. Life will still be filled with pain 
and suffering. And again, trying to avoid it is like trying to avoid a snowflake in a blizzard. And for these famous people, as well as many other people that we know in this world, uh, they thought that the more money they had, the more possessions they had, the more comforts they had in this life, that somehow those things would relieve or remove the trials and tribulations, the pain and the suffering of this world. And when they realized that it didn't, Cause them to hit the wall of ultimate disillusionment and then depression and even suicide. Which means this, and listen to me when I say this. The very thing the people of this world want more than all the money and possessions in this world is the one thing that only God can provide. Only being a Christian can grant you the prize of one day being able to escape the trials and tribulations and pain and suffering of this world. And again, it is the very thing that all people ultimately at the end of the day want. And only the Christian, only the Christian has been offered that prize. The prize, again, of gaining an eternity where pain no longer exists, where you will never be asked to sacrifice or suffer again. That's heaven. A place free from the very thing every human being wants more than anything else. But again, only a Christian has that prize available to them. Kind of makes you feel sorry for the person in the world or the atheist, doesn't it? Really turns the tables, doesn't it? When you think about it that way. You think things are uh, uh, so great on the outside. And maybe uh, you thought that way. I'm this Christian and I'm missing out. When in reality, you possess... The possibility of having the one thing they all, in the pursuit of the things of this world, are ultimately looking for an escape from the pain and the suffering. And only the Christian has the potential to receive that. For the world, with all of its pain, this life is the best it will ever be. For the world... This life is the best it will ever be. What they have to look forward to in the future will be the worst it will ever be. And it will be the worst for all eternity. For the Christian, however, this is the worst it will ever be. This is the worst it will ever be. What we have to look forward to is the best. Again, the very thing that all people, including the people of this world, Want more than anything else. Beloved, that is the, to me, that is the incredible deal. And I think that's the best way to frame it. The deal that Jesus gives to us, the Christian. Submit and sacrifice and be willing to suffer for me now. And I promise if you do that, 
I'll give you a place where you will never, ever, ever be asked or have to experience those things again. And beloved, that that should be the message that, that we're preaching to the atheists and the worldling. That's the deal that turns the tables. I don't know. Call me crazy, but I think I'm the the person in the better position, don't you? For the person in the world, the sacrifice and the suffering of this world is also considered nothing but meaningless evil to be avoided. Meaningless. It's of no good. For the Christian... As we saw in Romans 8, God uses all the sacrifice, all the suffering to push us in the direction of our goal. They function as the meaningful tests. We are motivated to pass so that we can win our prize. James chapter 1 verse 12, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, who passes the test Kids, you're in school, you get a test. What do you need to do? You need to pass the test. It's no different. All of these are the tests. And blessed is the man who passed the test. He will receive, James 1.12, the crown of life. The outlook for the atheist or the world is depressing and tragic. The outlook for the Christian is encouraging and triumphant. Having the correct goal is therefore imperative and a huge perspective changer, one that transforms how you approach and live your Christian life. The sacrifice, the suffering, trials and temptation associated with living as a Christian are now viewed as totally worth it given the prize it will award to us if we pass. Again, going back to Paul's words in Romans 8.18, I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory to be revealed to us. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, he calls them momentary light afflictions in comparison to what we'll receive if we are faithful. All living things, it doesn't matter what it is, human or otherwise, all living things are wired this way. We are all motivated and willing to suffer, willing to suffer if we believe there is a a reward that outweighs the suffering or sacrifice involved to get it. Let me just say that again. All living things, are motivated and willing to suffer if we believe there is a reward that outweighs the suffering or sacrifice involved to get it. Let me just give you some examples. All of these are, of course, human examples, but uh, athletes. We have the Olympics going on right now. We're getting ready to, uh, uh, to watch the Super Bowl next week, right? And uh, you have uh, athletes involved in the, those uh, two types of competitions, and uh, they've worked very hard. They've given up a lot by way of sacrifice. They've, they've suffered to get to this place of uh, competition that they now exist in. And why do they do it? 
because they believe that all of that suffering, and they're motivated, right? They, they, they look forward to this. Every season, professional athletes look forward to all the grueling pain and suffering and sacrifice that will be required of them to get a trophy, to get a prize. It's worth it. We're wired that way. When we think about life that way, it motivates us. I'm okay with suffering if I get something that's worth it for it. Soldiers in war. Soldiers in war. Some of you have read or know about uh, those who fought in World War II and uh, were put on the beaches in Normandy on D-Day. And uh, many of those uh, young men, uh, based on Eisenhower's address, they knew that they were not, they weren't coming home. And yet, uh, they were ready to go to death for the sake of what that would mean for their children. Those that they would, some of them would, ne- uh, most of those who died would never see again. And yet they were motivated to do that. To go into that kind of battle and to give that kind of sacrifice, to endure that kind of suffering, to win that kind of prize. On a smaller scale, students grueling through college. Why do you do it? For the prize at the end, right? You're motivated in that way. All things are. We're all happy to do it because we believe in those circumstances or scenarios that the sacrifice and suffering to achieve the goal of the prize is worth it. It's worth it. And so it is with our Christian life when we have the right goal. When the goal is heaven, we will be willing to sacrifice and suffer, again, Paul's words in verse 11, by any means possible and we do it happily for our king parents this is what you need to preach to your kids the goal of being a christian the reason that king jesus saved us is not for the avoidance of pain but for the acquiring of heaven it is not about this life it's about the next life it's about using what it is that jesus has given us in this life To get to the next life. This is the goal that we need to constantly remind ourselves of. Especially in the midst of trials and temptation. We gladly remain faithful and are willing to give up whatever. Because the prize is worth it. It's worth it. Number two. Here's where we get to the strategy portion of this we have the goal how do we get there well here's the question who will achieve the goal who will achieve the goal who will achieve the goal the goal is to get to heaven to gain or to win the heavenly prize paul talks about it this way in first corinthians 9 run to win don't run for a perishable wreath, the kind of things that, uh, or crown, those uh, kinds of things that athletes uh, receive if they win, but that which is imperishable, immortal, 
run to win? Well, who will achieve that goal? Well, here's the answer. Only those Christians who were loyal to King Jesus and his church over everything else. Only those Christians, which means that's the place to start, right? Only those Christians, it's only available to Christians. Only those Christians who were loyal to King Jesus and his church, who were loyal to King Jesus and his church over everything else. A lot of people would say that they're, and I'm speaking of those who claim to be Christians, they would say that they're loyal to King Jesus and his church, but the question is, are they loyal to King Jesus and his church over everything else? You see, that's the key. That's the key. So again, who will achieve the goal? Only those Christians who were loyal to King Jesus and his church over everything else, which means this, just becoming a Christian is not enough. That's the place to start, but that's where you start the race. You still need to finish. And again, you need to run to win, to win. Only those Christians, those kinds of Christians, those again who are loyal to Jesus and his church over everything else, will realize the goal and win the heavenly prize. What does that mean? Well, it means, at the very least, uh, this. Jesus didn't save us to become better humanists. Do you know what humanism is? If you don't, let me just uh, tell you. Humanism is a system of thought attaching primary importance to human rather than divine matters or agendas. Let me say it again. It's a system of thought attaching, and here's the key piece, primary importance to human rather than divine matters or agendas, things related to God. In short, humans come first. That's humanism. Again, Jesus didn't save us to become better humanists. With the humanists, Uh, The will or the desire or the value of humans is more important than the will, desire, or value of God. The will, desire, and value of humans is more important than the will, desire, or value of God. I would say that that uh, identifies the majority of so-called Christian churches out there today. Uh, They're not truly uh, churches, at least not biblically defined, Uh, They're humanist societies where the value and the desire and the will of humans trumps God. Jesus didn't save us to uh, make us better humanists, to make us more loyal to humanity. Jesus saved us to become loyal to death theists. Not humanists, but theists. T-H-E-I-S-T. Theists. What do I mean by that? God comes first, his glory, his agenda, his will, his desire is primary. Jesus saved us to become those kinds of people, loyal to the death, theists. And because of that, the world will judge us as a pretty poor humanist. Pretty poor humanists. Especially when that means you will choose Jesus and his church. You will be loyal to Jesus and his church over other human beings, including family. 
to the world, especially the world today, which worships the family, uh, that makes you a cult and a monster. There should, however, be zero question that Jesus requires such loyalty to himself and his church to realize the goal and to get the heavenly prize. Let me just remind you by reading several texts in relation to Jesus, loyalty to Jesus above all else. Let's start with Matthew chapter 10. You know, I love that... uh, Peter says in First uh, Peter, or Second Peter rather, chapter 1, he says, as long as I'm in the tent of this body, as long as I am alive, I will continue, uh, paraphrasing of course, but I will continue to preach the same things over and over. That's what he says. And you've heard much of what I'm talking about now, uh, and most definitely what I'm going to read now, and yet we need to hear it, beloved, over and over. We need to hear it. If we're going to have the winning strategy to gain the prize, to get the goal, we need to hear it. Here's what Jesus says. Matthew 10, verse 32. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. Uh, Seems uh, pretty straightforward. It seems, at least on the surface, like what he's talking about here is just something that we do. Uh, verbally, and that, of course, is how many people have taken it, but as we read or continue to read, uh, we see that what Jesus means by acknowledge me uh, is far more than that, or it requires for a far more than just verbal acknowledgement. Verse 34, do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. In other words, because you acknowledge me, and the degree to which you are acknowledging or are loyal to me, even those in your own household will become your enemies. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Love, we know, means or refers to loyalty. Whoever is more loyal to them than me is not worthy of me. He cannot be my disciple. He will not be a Christian, and he will be forever separated from the possibility of possessing the very thing that all human beings want most, to escape the pain and suffering of this world. The only way that that prize is afforded to you is if you put Jesus, if you are loyal to Jesus, above everyone, everything else. Matthew chapter 10, in response uh, to uh, Jesus' conversation with the rich young ruler, uh, Peter says in verse 27, then Peter said in reply, see, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? You see, Peter's getting it. Everything. Jesus said to him, truly, I say to you, in the new world, The life to come, the reboot, heaven. 
When the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me, you who have been loyal to me, you've left everything for me, will also sit on 12 thrones judging and uh, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And everyone, notice, here's the uh, family piece, who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. And these are uh, Jesus' words again uh, in Luke chapter 14, verses 25 through 35, which prompts Jesus to say, you need to count the cost. Because this is what it means, Jesus says, to follow me. You need to be loyal to me above everything else. Loyal to me and to my church. To my church, this is the one, by the way, that the evangelicals, most so-called Christians, hate. But again, consider the words of Jesus in the book of Matthew. Turn back to chapter 18. Again, another text that you know, but let's read it together. Verse 17, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. Notice it says church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, the context, my church, gathered in my church, there am I among them. Translation. You reject the church and Jesus won't be standing with you. He'll be standing with them. The church. Isn't that what he's saying here? Loyalty then to Jesus and his church above everything else. And that loyalty is expected to the point of death. This was Jesus and he is to be our example. Again, going back to uh, our primary book, Philippians At least this morning it is. Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptying himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself. He submitted himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Have this mind among yourselves. Your loyalty will be to the point of death. Brother Gross uh, had a, a great quote last week. I hope you didn't miss it. Uh, I want to I give it to you again just in case you did. It comes from Origen. This is uh, in relation to the church. Origen was, of course, an early church father. That means he lived at a period of time very close to the time of Christ and the apostles. And here's what uh, he had to say about loyalty uh, to the church as it relates to the issue of salvation. And I quote, If someone from this people wants to be saved, let him come into this house so that he may be able to attain his salvation. Let no one be persuaded otherwise, nor let anyone deceive himself outside of this house, that is, outside of the church. No one is saved. For if anyone should go out of it, he is guilty of his own death. End quote. Well, that brings us then to the third and final question for this morning. Third and final question is this. How how do we determine, how do we determine 
how do we determine if a church, if a church, if a church is pursuing the Christian goal? How do we determine if a church is pursuing the Christian goal? Now, I'm going to uh, assume here that the first two questions and the way that I've answered those questions, that you agree with that. Can I at least get somewhat of a show of hands? Do you agree? Is it pretty straightforward that the goal is to get to heaven and that the only way, the winning strategy, the only strategy uh, to achieve or to realize that goal is by showing loyalty to Jesus and his church above everything else? Would, Would you agree with that? That's really simple, right? Well, based on uh, those two very, I think, simple truths, I would say that the number one way to determine whether a church is pursuing then the Christian goal is this, by assessing their loyalty to King Jesus and his church over everything else, wouldn't you? By assessing their loyalty to King Jesus and his church over everything else. Think about it. What do churches exist for? Based on what we just learned, uh, Well, I would say, among other things, if this is not uh, arguably the only thing or the way to sum up every other thing, they exist for the purpose of seeing that people realize or acquire the goal given by King Jesus. At the very least, I would say that is our primary function. Would you agree with me? You are here today because that is where you want to go. You want the church to help you get to heaven that's the goal given by king jesus that's the reason he saved you and me which means that's our purpose our primary function as the church is to see that her people realize or achieve the goal given by king jesus which means if we want to determine whether or not they are doing that we need to look at their strategy that strategy being how loyal Are they to King Jesus and his church? And that, by the way, I think, and I hope you would agree with me, is the only strategy for achieving the goal. So what does that look like? Well, practically, what does that look like? Uh, How do we assess this, their loyalty to Jesus and his church? Well, the easy answer would be by examining uh, what that church preached week in and uh, week out. Is it loyalty to Jesus and his church is necessary to heaven? Or is it faith alone? In other words, what's their gospel? What's their gospel? The more telling way, however, to determine that loyalty is, in my opinion, uh, looking at the church's actual performance or actions when such loyalty was challenged by loyalty to other things. Let me just say that again. Looking at the church's actual performance, right? Because, uh, as we say, words are cheap. You're preaching it, but are you practicing it? And so looking at the church's actual performance, that's, I think, the, the more telling way to determine 
whether or not they have uh, the winning strategy, the only strategy, to assess whether or not they truly are being loyal to Jesus and His church above everything else, looking at their actual performance when such loyalty was challenged by loyalty to other things because it's easy uh, to do uh, what we're called to do when there's, uh, there's no pressure to do otherwise. And that most especially when it involves family members. Remember, Jesus says that's, uh, that's uh, where, the, uh, where the, the rubber meets the road, right? Where the, the lines are really drawn in the sand. That's the big issue dividing most people. For example, then, when a child or other family member crosses the line into apostasy, what did that church do? What did it tell its people to do? Or what about when it was clear uh, that unbelieving family or friends needed to be separated from or fellowship rejected as taught in loyalty uh, loyalty to Jesus passages such as 2 Corinthians 6, 14 through 18 or 2 John 1, 9 through 11? What did they do? Now again, I, I think this is pretty straightforward and I, 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 I'm hoping that you would agree with me. That's the more telling way to really assess or determine a church's loyalty to Jesus and his church over everything else. Whether or not that church is pursuing the Christian goal. Whether or not that church is able to get their people to realize the prize. By looking at the strategy. And when I say looking at the strategy, their actions. They may preach it, but what about in practice? And especially when it uh, involves family or friends. What do they do? What did they do? Are those, uh, beloved, not the real markers of loyalty to Jesus and his church? We tend to look at the numbers of people who are declared apostate in a church or people separated from as a negative thing, especially when those people are family. When in reality, here's another uh, paradigm shifter or perspective changer. When in reality, every single one of those is a demonstration of that church's loyalty to Jesus when it counted most. Would you not agree with me? Again, did we not just read that the family would be the area that would cause the most division? And by that, then, would determine ultimately where people stood in regard to eternity. So here maybe is the, the, the final question, not as a point, but as it relates to this third and final point. Uh, beloved, how are we doing here at Christ Covenant Church in respect to these things? How is Christ's covenant church doing in pursuing the Christian goal now that you know what the goal is based on now what you know the strategy to be to realizing the goal? How are we doing? How are we doing? How are we doing in our loyalty to King Jesus and his church? Has this church ever flinched to show her loyalty even when it meant losing family or friends? Ever. Ever. 
Have we ever put something above loyalty to King Jesus and his church? For some of you right now, this is, and, and I praise God for it, this is a big time change of perspective in regard to these things. Big time change. Let me, t- let me tell you, for me, no change at all. I am all the more proud and super thankful to be a part of a church that is committed to such loyalty and such a strategy for King Jesus. For some of you, this is what uh, makes your belly ache. The more people that leave this church, the more people that uh, we stand against in our loyalty to Jesus and His church, the more your belly aches. You look down on such things. Your perspective is, what's wrong? What's going wrong? Well, again, I hope this has been a huge perspective change for you. Because uh, here's how you answer that question when framed as a question. Why then do people sometimes bellyache or look down on such things? Well, because they forget the goal. They forget the goal. They forget why our King Jesus so graciously saved us. And when you forget the goal, get it, they likewise forget the strategy for realizing it and winning the prize. Isn't that it? All of those things are not negatives. They're positives when you know the goal. And you know the strategy for realizing the goal. Beloved, this isn't a book club or a society for humanists. This is a church under the rule of King Jesus, which means we are and we will always be, as long as I am the pastor of this church, committed to the goal that he gave us when he saved us, and we will continue to operate according to the only strategy that will cause us to realize it. Loyalty to him and to his church over everything else. And if you don't like that, or me because of that, don't worry. I promise I won't lose any sleep over you. (laughs) I sleep just fine because I know that for the last 20 plus years, I've had the wonderful privilege of being a part of a church that doesn't just preach loyalty to our king, but practices it. That, as far as God says in his word goes, is the only kind of church that will get you to heaven. That is, again, the only winning strategy. Closing consideration, then, two things that I want to do in light of what we've talked about here today. I want to tweak, I want to improve our sound gospel proclamation to include uh, the Christian goal. As such, going forward, we will now say this, the sound gospel is the good news of heaven. The sound gospel is the good news of heaven if we are loyal to King Jesus and his church in the relationship of covenant. And uh, you don't need to memorize that. You'll see it on the screen next week. The good news, it is the good news of heaven if we are loyal to King Jesus and his church in the relationship of covenant. The second thing that I want to do is that after the blessing uh, that I'm going to do here in just a second from number six, uh, we close that normally by just saying amen, but I, I, I want to I want to take it to the next level. This is the way that we need to close out our service. After that blessing, I will say then this, all for King Jesus. And you will respond back with the same, all for King Jesus. Got it? Okay, let's pray. Father, thank you that you love us. Your word is here so that we are 
not poisoned and corrupted and conformed to the pattern of this very stupid and wicked and sad, sad world, but transformed. And uh, we are, again, we're thankful for that because as thinking beings, we need our mind changed, transformed, so that we are, again, motivated to live for you, so that the goal is right, that the strategy is on course for getting there. I pray that we keep, uh, keep that now in our minds and in our hearts in the days forward. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, please stand, God's people. In obedience with the Lord's command in number six, I now bless you with these words. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May he be favorable to you and give you grace. May he be happy with you and give you peace. All for King Jesus. All for King Jesus. You are dismissed.